Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 123, Space Shuttle Flight 51, STS-52, Orbital Disco. Last time, we talked about the second flight of Space Shuttle Endeavour, STS-47. The flight was also known as Space Lab J, thanks to the extensive involvement of the National Space Development Agency of Japan, which sponsored the majority of the experiments on the flight. We confused some carp, we flashed some lights at a payload specialist, and we bred some frogs in low Earth orbit. On this flight, we'll trade in the various critters for a payload that glitters. Today's primary mission is the deployment of Lagios 2, with Lagios being short for Laser Geodynamics Satellite. You might be able to guess what Lagios is used for just from the name, but I'll save the details for once we arrive on orbit. The satellite is somewhat unusual, not necessarily for what it is or what it does, but for how it came to be. The original Lagios was built by the Goddard Space Flight Center and launched on a Delta rocket in 1976. For Lagios 2, Goddard provided the blueprints for Lagios 1 to the Italian Space Agency. Constructing a spacecraft, even with explicit blueprints, is no small feat, but by starting with a design that they knew would work, Italy was able to save a ton of time, money, and effort while still gaining a lot of experience in spacecraft manufacturing. Not to mention the fact that the world got a handy-dandy new satellite. The flight would also carry the United States Microgravity Payload, or USMP-1. This might sound familiar, but you're probably thinking of USML-1, the U.S. Microgravity Lab. Your confusion is warranted, though, since it seems like a lot of these shuttle payloads contain the word microgravity and the suffix 1. I'm not sure how so many things are 1, but there you go. Unlike USML-1, USMP-1 would not be using a pressurized space lab module. Instead, three experiments were mounted onto special support structures that spanned Columbia's payload bay. Again, I'll save a more detailed explanation of what these experiments are and what makes them special for when we arrive on orbit. Let's meet the crew! Today we'll be flying with two pilots, three mission specialists, and a lone payload specialist. Their names should sound awfully familiar to you, though, since other than our payload specialist, the entire crew will be making their second or third flights into space with this mission. Commanding the flight was Jim Weatherby, who we last saw flying as pilot just over two years ago on STS-32, the LDEF retrieval flight. Weatherby was actually originally assigned to fly as pilot again, this time on STS-46, which carried the tethered satellite system. But when two shuttle commanders retired, it made sense to start promoting some pilots and building the pool of commanders back up again. I guess NASA was happy with his performance in the commander seat because this is only his second of six flights. Joining Weatherby up front is our pilot, Mike Baker. Baker last flew only around 14 months ago, riding shotgun with our old friend John Blaha on STS-43. This is his second of four flights. Moving back to the mission specialists, we find mission specialist 1, Lacey Veach. I'm still sort of mystified by Veach's middle name of Lacey and why he chose to go by it instead of his first name Charles, but names are mysterious things. We last saw Veach flying on the mind-numbingly complex orbital ballet that was STS-39. This is his second and unfortunately last mission, as he would pass away due to cancer three years after this flight. Flying in the center was our flight engineer, Mission Specialist 2, Bill Shepard. 
We've seen Shepard twice already, most recently on STS-41, which deployed the Ulysses probe. Bill has one flight remaining, which he won't see for a few years, but it'll be well worth the wait. The first command of the International Space Station. And that makes this his third of four flights. Moving downstairs, we meet Mission Specialist 3, Tammy Jernigan. We know Jernigan from her flight on STS-40, which carried the Space Life Sciences 1 payload inside Space Lab. There's that one again. She may not get much of a view down on the mid-deck for Ascent, but for re-entry, she'll swap places with Mission Specialist 1, Lacey Veach, and get to enjoy the Plasma Light Show. And she'll be enjoying that light show for a while to come, since this is only her second of five flights. And last but certainly not least, Payload Specialist 1, Steve McLean. Stephen McLean was born on December 14, 1954 in Ottawa, Ontario. He earned a bachelor's degree and PhD in physics from York University in Toronto. While in school, he competed on the Canadian National Gymnastics Team, so maybe his inner ear was already accustomed to crazy flying around. His research focused on electro-optics, laser-induced fluorescence of particles and crystals, and multi-photon laser spectroscopy. In 1983, he was one of six lucky Canadians selected to begin astronaut training. This is his first of two flights, but we've got quite a wait for his second flight, which won't come until 2006, 14 years after his first. And I guess since he just couldn't get enough space, a couple of years after that flight, he became the president of the Canadian Space Agency. The McKenzie brothers would be proud. The mission was delayed by one week due to an issue discovered in one of the main engines. Rather than spend the time and effort precisely diagnosing the issue and repairing it on the launch pad, the decision was made to just swap the engine out entirely. One of these days, I've really got to learn how they replace an engine while still on the pad, because that sounds like quite an operation. But for now, it's enough to know that they did it. Seven days later than originally planned, on October 22nd, 1992, with all engines good to go, it was time to try for another launch. The count proceeded smoothly, but, as is so often the case, life at the bottom of a giant pool of nitrogen, oxygen, and water vapor proved to be unpredictable. That is, the weather was no good. Specifically, the weather was no good at the transatlantic abort landing sites, as well as the shuttle landing facility at the Kennedy Space Center, which would be used in the case of a return-to-launch-site abort. Eventually, the weather overseas cleared up, but the winds at the SLF remained problematic. In situations like this, mission controllers fall back on giant stacks of mission rules. These rules are carefully thought out and vetted ahead of time, so that in the midst of an unfolding crisis, or with the natural desire to launch mounting, controllers could refer back to cold, hard numbers. Human emotions are great for a lot of things, but it's usually not a great idea to rely on them for important quantitative decisions. Like the great Captain Disillusion says, love with your heart, use your head for everything else. The situation at hand was this. Since the shuttle landed as an unpowered glider, it only got one shot at landing. It could not go around and try again. This meant that the mission rules were particularly sensitive to the wind conditions at the landing site. The conditions had to be such that the shuttle commander was presented with a landable spacecraft. In STS-52's case, wind perpendicular to the runway, the crosswind, was staying just below the limit of 15 knots, and occasionally gusting over it. 
the mission management team, led by three-time shuttle astronaut Brewster Shaw, recommended proceeding with the launch anyway, even after reservations were expressed by the ascent flight director in Houston, Jeff Bantle. Shaw's logic played out like this. The steady-state crosswind was within limits, with only occasional gusts violating the rule. Columbia was lighter than normal due to a smaller payload, and simulation experience indicated that even if the gusts did violate the conditions by a little, Commander Weatherby would have no issues at all with landing. He later said, quote, We accepted Jeff's recommendation based upon his interpretation of his guidelines, and then we made a management decision that went in a different direction. And that sometimes happens in this business. I'm not really sure what to think of this. On the one hand, I think Shaw has a point. It's not uncommon to set pretty conservative limits and occasionally tweak them under special circumstances. An RTLS abort is pretty unlikely, having never taken place in the 50 flights preceding this one. And even if the winds weren't ideal, they were right on the limit. Combine that with the lighter weight shuttle, Shaw's personal experience flying the orbiter, and his knowledge of Weatherby's experience, and this doesn't seem all that unreasonable. But on the other hand, this is precisely why these mission rules exist. You make the judgments ahead of time based on the engineering data, and you bake it in, so you don't have to make the call on the fly. Particularly concerning to me was the now-chilling phrase, management decision, which is precisely what led to the loss of Space Shuttle Challenger. I don't know. I'd be curious to hear what podcast listeners think about it. Is this a reasonable tweak to a conservative limit? A classic case of go fever? Or, as is often the real answer, a mixture of both? In any case, after nearly two hours of delays, on October 22, 1992, at 1.09 p.m., Space Shuttle Columbia lifted off for the 13th time, cruising through an uneventful ascent. As soon as they arrived on orbit, the crew got to work. One of the first tasks was to activate the regenerable carbon dioxide removal system, which we saw fly a few missions ago on STS-50. This new piece of equipment was designed to remove carbon dioxide from the crew cabin air and dump it overboard, without needing one-time-use lithium hydroxide canisters. This not only helped to lighten the crew workload, but would also allow for longer missions. On STS-50, the system had hit a few snags that required a little zero-g orbiter surgery, but for STS-52, it worked flawlessly for the duration of the mission. 20 hours after activating RCRS on flight day 2, it was time to complete one of the mission's primary objectives, the deployment of Lagios-2. With mission specialist Tammy Jernigan on the controls, a sight straight out of the early 1980s was visible through the aft windows. A Pac-Man-esque sunshield opened up, a small spacecraft inside began spinning to increase stability during the deployment, and with a flick of the switch by Jernigan, it popped out, rising out of the payload bay and out of sight. The spacecraft would be making its way to a higher orbit, and just like we're used to seeing from the PAM-D era, that meant that it had a couple of small, solid rocket motors to raise its orbit and then circularize it once up there. But... For whatever reason, the Italian space agency opted for a configuration that looked like something straight out of Kerbal Space Program. Rather than the typical arrangement of perigee kick motor, apogee kick motor, and payload on top, Legios 2 went with perigee kick motor, payload in the middle, and upside down apogee kick motor. 
this works perfectly fine since they would simply just turn the spacecraft around when it was time to use the Apogee kick motor, but it's still really weird to see. Alright, I've brought Lagios 2 up a couple of times now and we keep talking around it. What is this thing? Lagios 2 is an aluminum ball, 60 centimeters across and weighing 405 kilograms. That's 2 feet and 900 pounds in, I can't believe we're still using these, units. To put that into everyday terms, it was about the size of a yoga ball and weighed about the same as a grand piano. On the spacecraft, there were no thrusters, no reaction control wheels, no control moment gyros, no antennas, and no electronics. Instead, its surface was completely covered by 426 special mirrors called retroreflectors. These retroreflectors were designed to bounce light back in the direction that it came from, just like the ones that we left on the moon back during Apollo. Combined, they gave the spacecraft an appearance that was sort of a mix between a golf ball and a disco ball. Once it fired its two kick motors, Legios 2 would be up in a 5,900 kilometer high circular orbit with a 52 degree inclination. Okay, great, so what is it? Why are they sending this weirdly small, weirdly heavy satellite into a weird orbit? The answer is geodesy. Geodesy, in short, is all about measuring the physical properties of the Earth, its exact mass, shape, orientation, and so on. As we know, the Earth is not a precise sphere, but either an oblate spheroid or a smushed ball, depending on how fancy you want to sound. And of course, that smushed ball has all sorts of variations in density, particularly those variations of densities we call continents and like to live on. All of this variation from an ideal sphere has a profound effect on the orbit of a spacecraft. The bulge of the Earth around the equator tugs at the inclination of low Earth orbits. The mass of the continents tugs at geostationary satellites trying to remain in one place. So if you're planning a long-running space mission, it's really important to have a good model for these effects. To accomplish this, scientists and engineers on the ground would use specialized equipment to fire lasers at Legios 2. The lasers would hit the retroreflectors and come right back down to a sensor. Since we know how fast light is, and we know when we fired the laser, and we know when the laser bounced back, that tells us precisely how far away Legios 2 is at that moment, with a little wiggle room added in by the atmosphere. If you do that regularly, and from a bunch of different locations, you can very precisely dial in what Legios' orbit is now and how that orbit is changing over time. You can then do the math to figure out what the shape of the Earth must be in order to cause the observed orbital changes. And not only can you tell precisely where Legios is, but you can also tell where you are and how your position might be changing. Because as if this problem wasn't complicated enough, the Earth doesn't just sit still. Earthquakes regularly move land around by small but significant amounts and can even make small changes to the rate of rotation and the orientation of the entire planet. So by checking the laser station's position against Legios' orbit, you can tell how the station is moving, very precisely. This is particularly useful for measuring the movements of tectonic plates, which might only move a few centimeters per year. Some of you may have spotted a problem or two here, so I'll start with an easy one. Hey, won't atmospheric drag also change Legios' orbit? You're always reminding us that atmospheric drag will pull satellites down over time. 
That's true, but the folks at the Goddard Space Flight Center and the Italian Space Agency had thought of that. Legios's orbit was chosen to be so high that there is essentially zero atmosphere left. But to account for even that small amount remaining, Legios was made to be small, dense, and round to slip by unperturbed. Or at least unperturbed as possible. If you're wondering how they made it so heavy, by the way, there is a big chunk of brass at the center of the ball, which does the job nicely. Okay, so what about the bigger problem? I just told you that we use laser stations with known positions to check the satellite's orbit, and that we use the satellite's orbit to check the position of the laser stations. So which one is defining which? Well, sort of both. I'm getting really into the weeds and kind of out of my area of expertise now, but as I understand it, it's an ongoing process of iteration and refinement. Let's say that a laser station in California notices a tweak in the satellite's orbit. Did the station move, or did something else move? Well, maybe you know that a big earthquake happened on the other side of the planet, and then you try tweaking your model to account for that, and see if it lines up with the new observations. Or maybe more obviously, you notice all the books and broken glass on the floor and figure that maybe you're the one that an earthquake moved. Eventually, this process would also be supplemented by the addition of the Global Positioning System, GPS. GPS, by the way, greatly benefited from this laser geodesy process. After all, they had to figure out exactly where the GPS satellites were in order for the system to work in the first place. The Legios 2 orbit was chosen both for its remarkable stability and to complement the orbit of its predecessor, Legios 1, which was in a polar orbit. With Legios 2 in a more equatorial orbit, it would pass more frequently over earthquake-prone areas like California or the Mediterranean, allowing for more frequent measurements. The chosen orbit was so stable that Legios 2 is not expected to re-enter for nearly 8.2 million years. Put another way, that's around 27 times longer than humans have existed. With that longevity in mind, when Legios 1 was launched on May 4th, 1976, it carried a special little artifact, a plaque. The plaque was designed by noted planetary scientist Carl Sagan, and tried to convey to any future space traveler who happened upon the spacecraft where it came from, or perhaps more accurately, when it came from. It demonstrates the binary counting system, showing the numbers 1 to 10 in binary. It then shows a picture of the Earth moving around the Sun with a 1 next to it to denote one year. It then shows three pictures of the face of the Earth. One shows Pangaea, the supercontinent from millions of years ago, along with an arrow to the left and a binary number that shakes out to around 270 million, indicating that this is what the Earth looked like 270 million years before this launch. The second picture of the Earth shows the continents in their current positions, with the binary number 0 and a picture of Legios being sent into orbit. The third picture shows an estimate of the future positions of the continents, a picture of Legios returning to Earth, and a binary number that shakes out to about 8.2 million, alongside an arrow pointing to the right. The hope was that if future space travelers found it, they would be able to work out just how old this humble little spacecraft really was. It's pretty incredible to think about, a sort of space-age version of cave paintings, left for people countless generations from now. It's an optimistic message. But that's obviously for another day. 8.2 million years before Legios burns up in the atmosphere, we've still got a bunch of work to do. 
The second primary payload of this flight is the United States Microgravity Payload, or USMP-1. In addition to the concrete science being done, this was yet another meta-experiment performed in preparation for the upcoming space station. If experiments physically located in space could be operated from the ground, then the workload of the astronauts of the future space station could be lightened, and science could still continue even during the early periods when nobody was on board. So with that in mind, three experiments were mounted in the payload bay that had essentially no crew involvement. The crew flipped the power on at the start of the mission, and they flipped the power off at the end of the mission. That's literally it. In between those two events, scientists on the ground would send hundreds of commands and receive streams of data about the states of their experiments. One of these experiments sought to better understand the behavior of helium under very specific circumstances. Just like how materials have a melting point or a boiling point, helium has what's called a lambda point, where it transitions into a superfluid called helium-2, which I guess is the exciting sequel to helium. Superfluids are super weird and super outside the scope of this podcast, and have a lot of interesting potential applications. Precisely nailing down the temperature where this transition happens could help confirm or refute some theories about how matter works. But the trouble is, the lambda point is so sensitive that performing it on Earth limits the precision of the experiment. The slight differences in pressure from simply being in a 1G environment masks the sought-after data. So instead, they're going to do it in space. I took a look through the paper reporting some of the results from this experiment, and man, what? I don't understand this experiment at all. At one point, the phrase paramagnetic salt thermometer came up. All I know is that by performing this experiment on the shuttle, scientists were able to refine their understanding about this exotic phase transition, which is pretty cool. I mean, really cool, since they had to get it down to like 2 degrees Kelvin. Pause for laughter. Considerably warmer than helium's lambda point was payload specialist 1 and Canadian astronaut Steve McLean, who had a bunch of experiments to perform. Now, I could use this as an opportunity to joke about McLean studying the properties of Tim Horton's coffee under weightless conditions, or the dynamics of space-based hockey pucks, but I won't make those jokes that I just made, because we're better than that at the space above us. <laughs> McLean actually had quite a few experiments to work through, including stuff like fluid behavior and microgravity, spectrometer measurements of light bouncing off the atmosphere, and investigations of the orbiter glow while in lower orbits. But two experiments that especially caught my eye actually took place outside of the crew cabin. First, the Materials Exposure in Low Earth Orbit Experiment, or MELIO. We've seen a number of samples of materials flown for the purposes of exposing them to atomic oxygen in order to better assess how they'll hold up during long-duration spaceflights. Well, I guess Canada wanted to get a bunch out of the way all at once because covering the remote manipulator system, aka Canada Arm, were samples of over 350 different materials. The varied colors of the materials made it look like the RMS had been bundled up in a nice comfy quilt. But instead of staying nice and warm, the quilt was exposed to some of the harshest conditions that humans regularly visit. Shuttle Commander Weatherby lowered Columbia's orbit to only 211 kilometers in order to fly through as much atomic oxygen as possible. The experiment was pretty simple to execute, since all it really took was placing the RMS out into the quote-unquote wind stream and racking up the hours. More complex was the evaluation of the Space Vision System, or SVS. 
A common problem in space is precisely judging the size, distance, and orientations of big pieces of spaceflight equipment. There's a few reasons for this. For one thing, most spaceflight hardware is custom-built for the task at hand, and assumes whatever bizarre shape the physics dictates. This means that the astronauts' brains don't really have anything to compare it to. It's not like when you see a truck in the distance and can reasonably assume that it's around the same size as other trucks that you've seen. Also, they're out in space, where there's nothing to prevent a crystal-clear view. Since part of human depth perception counts on a little bit of atmospheric haze, this can mess with our sense of how far away something is. Another factor is the unusual lighting. It's not uncommon for one part of a spacecraft to be extremely brightly lit, while another part of it is in total shadow. And lastly, due to the limited number of windows, it's often necessary to move things around while watching through a two-dimensional camera view. So far in the shuttle program, this may have been a nuisance, but wasn't necessarily a big deal. Pretty soon, though, we're planning on moving big, huge space station modules around in very close proximity as we start to assemble our new orbital outpost. So it was super important that astronauts had a firm grasp of where these modules were and how they were oriented while they were being moved around. This is where the space vision system comes in. SVS took advantage of pre-programmed knowledge of what target structures looked like, along with a number of special dots arranged in a pattern that the computer could understand. Basically, rather than try to understand shifty shadows, shiny metal, blinding thermal blankets, and crinkly gold foil, the computer would just look at these strategically placed dots and compare them to the dots on its own model. When it figures out a few of the dots, the rest of the structure can be extrapolated from that, and the computer could tell the astronaut exactly what's going on. This technique is similar to that used by movie or video game studios for motion capture. In that case, actors wear funny suits covered in little dots that a whole network of cameras watch. Also, Solid Snake's movements feel more natural. Incidentally, the lack of any sort of computer-friendly markers on Landsat 7 is one thing that makes OSAM-1, the mission I work on for my day job, such a challenge. The computer on OSAM just has to figure it out the hard way by trying to recognize certain landmarks among all the crinkly gold foil and reflections from the sun. You might be wondering what these special dots look like, and you might be surprised if I told you that if you listen to this podcast, I guarantee that you've seen them before, even if you didn't notice. Go hop on to your image search engine of choice and punch in ISS Destiny Exterior. You'll get a bunch of pictures of one of the main laboratories on the International Space Station. Notice anything? That's right, it's covered in white circles with black dots at their center. These dots were used by an updated version of SVS to assist in assembling the massive space station. Something I'm unclear on is why they stopped being used for some of the more recent additions to the ISS, but I'm not too concerned. I think we'll be learning a lot about the ISS together in just a little bit here. For this flight, the crew used the SVS to track a target on the end of the robot arm. Later in the flight, they released the target and backed away to evaluate how well the system could keep up as the target moved further away. The target was not recovered, but due to the lower orbit, it re-entered on its own not too long after the mission. And as if being abandoned in orbit wasn't bad enough for this poor SVS target, when it was around 50 meters away, the pilot crew intentionally hit it with the plume of an attitude control thruster in order to get an idea of how structures on the space station might be impacted by plumes from an incoming shuttle. 
After nearly 10 days in space, with Legios deployed and the onboard experiments completed, it was time for Columbia to head home. The crew closed the payload bay doors and got into their seats. Around three hours later, they performed the re-entry burn, and 54 colorful but uneventful minutes later, they touched down at the Kennedy Space Center. The new parachute system again made its presence known with a slight glitch, pulling slightly to the right, tugging at the orbiter enough for the crew to notice the motion. But between the nose gear steering, the ridiculously wide runway, and the heads up from the previous flight's commander, Hoot Gibson, on what to expect, there was no cause for concern. The wheels stopped, and the 9-day, 20-hour, 56-minute, and 13-second-long flight was in the books. And just as a fun fact, since the mission report always lists this and I never have a reason to mention it, even after flying for several minutes at subsonic speeds and then sitting on the runway for 28 minutes, Columbia's RCC nose cone was still 183 degrees Fahrenheit, or 84 degrees Celsius. Neat. All in all, I think it's safe to say that this was sort of a weird mission. One primary payload could have easily been carried into space on an expendable booster, but a few pre-Challenger international promises were apparently still lurking around. The other primary payload had literally no crew involvement, though it did perform some important science and helped to streamline science operations for the space station. With a mission like this, I like to remind myself that simply flying the shuttle is an experiment that provides valuable data all on its own. We said goodbye to the orbital flight tests 47 missions ago, but the shuttle could hardly be considered an operational vehicle, even now. Every ascent, orbit, and entry added more data points to dozens of areas of interest, from structural dynamics, to science planning, to material science and flight operations. And, if nothing else, I can think of six wobble-legged people who, in between fluid loading and mission debriefs, would agree that the flight was well worth the effort. Next time, we have a mission that seems to have gotten lost on the shuttle timeline. A short flight, a small crew, and a classified satellite? STS-53, are you sure you don't belong in 1985? Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Thank you.